This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Laureate Professor Nick Talley. Nick is Editor-in-Chief of the Medical Journal of Australia. He's also a physician, a neurogastroenterologist and a world-leading medical researcher. He joined me to talk all about the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic in Australia. We discussed some of the issues, including ICU bed and ventilator capacity, the widespread concern over personal protective equipment supplies, as well as whether Australia's testing criteria and arrangements are sufficient enough to capture the extent of COVID-19 infection in the Australian population. I'm very, very pleased to have with me on the phone the wonderful Laureate Professor Nick Talley. He is the Editor-in-Chief of the Medical Journal of Australia, which is Australia's leading peer-reviewed journal for medicine and research in medicine. And uh, Nick Talley has a very wide range of experience and depth of experience in medicine. He is an expert clinician, educator and researcher with extensive experience as a leader in the medical and university sectors. He is a neurogastroenterologist and has published over a thousand papers in peer-reviewed literature and he's also one of the world's most influential clinician researchers. For any of those who are doctors or perhaps medical students you may be familiar with Nick's work. He co-wrote a very famous and highly regarded textbook for physicians studying medicine and obviously undertaking study for their physician exams called Clinical Examination and Examination Medicine and uh, Nick has uh, done much, much more than that. He was awarded the Companion of the Order of Australia in 2018. And uh, as I said, he's currently Editor-in-Chief of the Medical Journal of Australia. And we're grateful to be having Nick on the show to lend his expertise to discuss the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic that Australia faces. Of course, a number of countries, most countries around the world are also facing a pandemic of varying proportions or obviously an epidemic locally. And uh, we're going to be talking about Australia's healthcare system and also some of the research that Nick has oversight of and has been publishing through the Medical Journal of Australia, particularly in regard to intensive care capacity. So I welcome Nick now and thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's really great to speak with you and I found uh, following you on Twitter has been of immense value to keep across the literature and see how research is evolving on this issue and it's really wonderful that um, open access has been enabled by so many medical journals and scientific journals around the world so that researchers and doctors can be sharing really fast and quickly the things that they are learning and observing from the pandemic in different uh, parts of the world. I wanted to first up touch on your experience and background in medicine. And certainly I I saw that you were also a professor of epidemiology in the United States when you were over there working among many other fields. Epidemiology has become a very relevant field all of a sudden, certainly in regard to the pandemic. From your perspective, having some expertise in epidemiology and the understanding of how modelling is created. What are your thoughts on Australia and the calls from the scientific community for the government to be releasing their modelling that they are basing their decisions on? 
Well, look, I think it's very important that models like the government is using are subject to review by other experts. I mean, it's easy to become fixated on a certain point of view, even for very good scientists, and it's good to test those uh, assumptions and the model building with others. And I think uh, I was pleased to hear that the models will be, as I understand it, released on Thursday, or at least that's what's reported. Um, and uh, I think this is this should have happened earlier, to be perfectly frank. Obviously, there are other models. Um, some have been criticised. Uh, we've published some models in the NJA as well. But look, models are basically, um, you know, they're not, they're not reality necessarily. They're representations of either current or possible realities. And, uh, you know, they're subject to what you put in them in terms of the assumptions. But we need to be thinking about all of our options here. And the more we know, the more we can succeed in doing. Yes, and it seems that models should be used and can be used to enable us to be better prepared and certainly to know what perhaps might be a worst-case scenario and how we might put in place strategies now to deal with what might come. Um, and one of the models that you have published or are publishing in the latest uh, journal edition is a new model of mortality and COVID-19 admissions, which, uh, as you've written in your editorial, has been validated against Italian data. What for those of us who aren't familiar with the model, does um, the model reveal and encompass and tell us? Well, basically, the model uh, is a very simple model, but it's, it's what's called a queuing model. But essentially what it says is, um, as ICU beds start to fill up, um, and this is what's happened overseas, as they start to fill up, suddenly there's this uh, linear rise in mortality after about 14 days or so of, 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 of what's called the surge. Now, we're not in the surge at the moment in Australia, but we're talking about, I guess, a, a future possible reality. And once that starts to skyrocket up, then uh, basically, um, obviously, more people, unfortunately, die of COVID, the disease. And while you could argue the reasons for this, it looks largely like there's not enough ventilator beds in intensive care to cope with the load and therefore the mortality rises presumably because there just aren't enough beds. So the big issue uh, in terms of uh, suppressing the curve as everyone hears about is actually buying time so that we don't end up in a situation where intensive cares are completely full and we get into this model that was reported in the NJA. So, you know, I, I, I hope this model never comes to pass, by the way. It really is a worst-case scenario. But in Italy, that's what they're seeing. In the UK, reportedly, this is not quite there yet, but it's a worry. And in the United States, in New York, this is not quite there yet either, but it looks very worrying. Yes, exactly. And we've seen some politicians come out and say we need to increase the number of ICU beds in Australia. Um, people have used a figure of 2,000 being the current capacity in Australia of ICU beds. But I have seen a number of um, people, particularly doctors who are intensivists in the ICU business, so to speak, and they have been highlighting the fact that it's not just having a bed and having a ventilator 
data, but it's obviously also having the highly trained and specialised doctors and nurses who operate these very complex machines. What are your thoughts on the actual medical system and its staffing and ability to staff any kind of increased number of ICU beds? Well, I think staffing and obviously the number of ventilators will be key, but staffing will be the big issue, I suspect. Um, I'm well aware that the government and and, uh, various hospitals around the country are working very, very hard to upscale ICU capacity, as they should. And a doubling of ICU capacity is relatively straightforward, probably, and a tripling or quadrupling likely to be very possible. But it will be a staffing issue. Not every doctor and nurse can run an ICU bed, can run a ventilator machine, even if there's a machine available. So this is the problem. And of course, if the surge is much higher than two, three, fourfold, well, we won't be able to meet that demand. And again, that's the reason the social or physical distancing, all the rules that are in place need to be in place to flatten that curve by the time and hopefully by buying time not only for beds but also for better treatments and hopefully a vaccine. Yes, that's a really important point is the vaccine being really an important element of enabling us to deal effectively with this and then be able to wind back some of the social distancing measures but obviously that's a far way off given the length of time it takes to develop a vaccine and then obviously test it and make sure that it's effective and doesn't have um, harmful effects as well. I was interested in the ICU unit and I know that people put a lot of their hope in ICU but from conversations I've had uh, with ICU doctors they also I guess would like the message to get out that they hope you don't end up in ICU anyway because often that is the worst case and things can be grim once you've reached such a severe stage of illness that you are ending up in ICU. So I guess a number of doctors have said to me they wish people don't get to that point uh, to begin with. So should we be being, I guess, cautious about the fact that although increasing ICU capacity is important, that it would be important to even mitigate or reduce um, the level of people needing such high level of care? No, you raise a very good point. I mean, once you're in an ICU bed, your mortality is unfortunately with this disease quite high. It really is. So we want to avoid that at all costs. Of course, the best way is not to get infected, um, and that will protect you. If you've already been infected and have antibodies, presumably you're protected, although we don't know enough about that situation and how long that protection lasts and and, and, and indeed, whether you know you'll still be at risk later on down the track. So, lots of unknowns there. <clears throat> and then for individuals in terms of their own risk, look. Besides trying to prevent infection, there are not a lot of things people can do. Obviously, try and stay as healthy as humanly possible, and stop smoking and stop vaping. The data suggest you are at higher risk of a bad outcome if you're a smoker or a vapour even, possibly. 
Yes, no, there is pretty strong data around that, um, certainly coming out of China where um, smokers were very much at a high risk of mortality and serious illness with COVID-19. One of the other elements of health risk is for healthcare workers themselves. And uh, we've seen, obviously, a number of doctors, not just in Australia, but in America, in New York, in some of these hot spots, and also Italy. And even when China was uh, in the thick of it in Wuhan, we were seeing a huge shortage of personal protective equipment and also varying standards as to what is um, effective and what is enough personal protective equipment to prevent uh, healthcare workers getting infected. And then obviously we've seen uh, out of Italy around 51 medical doctors um, die from coronavirus after contracting this infection. From your perspective and looking at Australia's situation, do we have an understanding or a clear enough understanding of the status of personal protective equipment in Australia and are the apprehensions of doctors who have been told to be more careful with PPE, are they warranted? Well, look, I think uh, this is one of my biggest concerns for doctors, nurses, all frontline health professionals. I mean, it's the ambulance drivers, it's, it's everybody mm. who's, you know, in contact with sick patients with COVID. Um, they all need, everyone needs sufficient personal protective equipment. Now, in a normal situation, we have very clear guidance about the kind of PPE that uh, we would potentially use. But in this situation, where in other countries anyway, there's been these surges of cases, and once the surge starts, it continues to accelerate, at least for a period of time. And basically the equipment is insufficient. And then there are some really difficult decisions for the frontline staff and really difficult situations, you know, for everybody. For example, you know, do you uh, allow your frontline staff without effective, you know, effective enough PPE, personal protective equipment, to actually look after those patients? And what do you do if you don't believe that's appropriate? Here is where we need national guidelines, which we don't, to the best of my knowledge, yet have, and some guidance about this, because I think we need to be, again, preparing for the very, very worst, and, of course, working extremely hard that we get the best outcomes. Um, I know there are more sourcing of PPE around the world, but, of course, supplies are low. We're going to have to make our own at least uh, more of it. And I know that's being ramped up as well, but we really will need to work hard on this. But I, I honestly believe we've got excellent infection control procedures and personnel in this country, in the hospitals. They're going to be terribly important people on the front line. But we also need to be prepared for the situation where we don't have enough PPE and then we're going to have to work out what our strategies will be. And I think we have to protect frontline staff. Remember, if they get sick, they can't look after anybody. The sick ones will have to be, you know, isolated. And that may lead to really huge problems in caring when we need more staff, not less, with any kind of surge. Mm. 
Mm. And uh, obviously N95 masks are the most important masks as compared with surgical masks, which are certainly not close to as effective in reducing uh, rates of infection. So um, some doctors I note had been discussing and talking about the private health system and the number of elective surgeries that had been going ahead. Where are we at in that? Because I know that was one of the factors in trying to preserve PPE and our stock and supplies and there'd been some debate about whether elective surgery should be going ahead? Well, look, I, I, I know some parts of the sector are, are cutting back or have uh, ceased anything but urgent or, or, or semi-urgent uh, elective surgeries. Um, and I certainly believe that should be where we are now. We need to conserve all our PPE. We need to uh, rest our, our health teams if we need them. And we need to galvanise the public and private sector, in my view. I mean, remember, we're going to have all sorts of issues if we get the surge, which they're facing in, for example, New York. Um, One issue is if you bring in patients with COVID and you have other patients in the hospital as well, the same hospital, different wards, you get what people have described as COVID bombs. You get these outbreaks in the non-COVID wards. And, of course, they infect staff and patients, um, which means you've got a sort of outbreak, you know, in the hospital, which is very hard to potentially both avoid and control. So, you know, we're going to have to work out what we do with everybody else who needs hospital care, and there'll be plenty of patients, plenty of people who need hospital care for non-COVID illness. We're going to have to work out if this surge occurs what we do in that situation. And uh, I I think uh, that hasn't been, again, well articulated uh, in my view, and it needs to be. Yes, that's an excellent point. It just reminds me that in the last few days, we saw the announcement from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne that they had a number of infections in their oncology and haematology ward um, of obviously limited patients, but also um, a limited number of staff in those wards. So some early signs that that could happen and is pretty difficult to prevent, I'm gathering, given how contagious COVID-19 is and also how dangerous it is to people with other pre-existing conditions, certainly those who might be dealing with cancer. Yes, look, I think anyone who's on certain drugs or has certain diseases is clearly going to be at higher risk of a a poorer outcome from disease and we need to try and prevent spread to those more vulnerable patients. We need to prevent spread to everybody, of course, but those more vulnerable patients in particular are are, are a great concern and there's been higher mortality rates, at least overseas, uh, in more vulnerable populations as well as older populations. So, um, look, this is important. It's going to be very difficult. And one thought I had, although it's just obviously there's many thoughts going around at the moment, is to utilise the private health system and revamp it up for patients who do not have COVID. You have to make sure you test them, though, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and make sure they don't. Um, And and to separate physically, um, you know, not just within a ward system, but frankly, within a hospital system, those uh, that are COVID hospitals and those that are not. Now, whether that's feasible, uh, there are lots of complexities around that, whether we should do that now in anticipation. um, And, of course, if we don't need it, that's great. But if we do, um, it'll be very helpful 
is all up for debate, but we need those debates. Yes, I agree. That's a really great suggestion and certainly is a viable option for governments to explore. And I know the state government is having discussions with the private uh, healthcare sector and private hospitals over the weekend. You raised their testing and the importance for rigorous testing and to make sure that those uh, patients would not have COVID-19. When we're looking at the testing criteria that we've seen be established in Australia and how it has since evolved, what are your thoughts on that criteria, especially in regard to some of the issues that people have highlighted around picking up asymptomatic or very mild cases of COVID-19 and uh, perhaps trying to test more widely to pick up just how much transmission does exist in the community that might be happening through very mild and asymptomatic cases? So, look, it's very clear we have community spread. How long we've had that for and how big it is, is debatable. Nobody knows because we haven't done the testing to find out. It's thought to be not as frequent as some other parts of the world. It must be very, uh, very common in Italy, for example, based on the huge outbreak there. Um, And they weren't testing, so they didn't see it. And in the U.S., Similarly, but this is a very infectious disease. I mean, you know, basically a single person will infect two or three others and then they'll infect two or three others and so on and so on and so on. So it's very infectious. And that's the problem. You need to test very widely to work out where your outbreaks are and then, you know, attempt to suppress those outbreaks very effectively. Now, if you can't test very widely, and up until recently we haven't had enough tests, I mean, even though we've done a lot, we haven't had enough testing, we would have done more, I suspect, if we'd had more tests, Um, then the only other way to deal with this is some of the social measures now in place, for example, in New South Wales, where you, you can't leave your home without breaking the law. I mean, that's essentially what's happened, unless you've got very good reasons, and there are a list of reasons that are reasonable. Um, so uh, this, this is, you know, this is the, the sort of the difficulty we have. And the trouble is, and I'll be honest, we now have so many community cases that I suspect it's very widespread. Um, and, you know, we, we, we will just have to see what happens over the next month or so in terms of our numbers and whether the social strategies in place work. I hope they do. Mm. I'm pleased the numbers seem to be falling in terms of number of new cases. That's good, but it's still going up and there's still a lot of community cases. So I'm, I'm pleased to see that change, but I'm not yet convinced um, we're in uh, safe territory by any means. And that's uh, the situation. Yes, yes, that's a really important point. And the World Health Organization have regularly been saying that, of course, having a lockdown, either a full lockdown or an almost uh, full-scale lockdown is important, but you also need to conduct rigorous testing, rigorous quarantining, contact tracing, all of those things which some countries have really excelled at, uh, like South Korea. Another has been Germany in the sense that they have been keeping their mortality rate lower than some of their European counterparts. And I did see in the news over the weekend that uh, almost, I guess, the the Norman Swan of Germany over there at the moment is Christian Drosten, who is a head of virology uh, at Berlin's Charity University Hospital. He's been advising the German government and he suggested that 
the real primary reason behind Germany's relative success has been the number of PCR swab tests it's been able to run. He's estimated up to 500,000 tests each week. Obviously, each country has different capacities and Germany has a great manufacturing sector, certainly in, in the scientific realm. But do you think we can learn from other countries and should be learning some of the lessons that other countries have been taking? I think the lessons are very clear and World Health Organization is correct. It's basically test, test and test. Germany's done it well. Um, clearly the US did it very badly early on um, and this has been an absolute public health disaster mm-hmm. in the US um, and we don't want to be in that situation. So I think, yes, the more aggressively we can test, the more people we can test, certainly we need to focus that testing to some extent at the moment but, but the sooner we can go wider, the better and that will only aid us in fighting the battle. Once you know a case and you can quarantine them um, and their family potentially because you know they've been in close contact um, then indeed we can get a much better handle on this and decently suppress the uh, the outbreaks and if we can suppress it for long enough we're going to be able to get back to a relatively normal life maybe more quickly than some think but of course it's all debatable and we don't know for sure but maybe that's the case and Wuhan is a very interesting example of that. Mm, yes. And we have seen two differing approaches kind of emerge in Australia. There's one uh, that's been emerging, particularly in Victoria, of the go hard, go fast approach, which Brett Sutton, our chief health officer, has certainly um, been more of a proponent of than some of his counterparts. I'm interested in how effective that approach might be because there has been in recent days speculation that if you do things quickly, properly and in a fuller sense, uh, we might be able to open things up faster. A lot of people have speculated that if we close things down, it'll be for up to six months and we don't want to do that. It'll damage the economy. But do you think there is um, a trade-off that could be made here? I think a trade-off could be made. Now, look, I, I know they're modelling this at the Commonwealth level very actively, and um, we're yet to see how those models will look. And, and there are other international models out there that say, yeah, you've got to suppress for a long time, and they may be correct for all I know. But my view is, yes, if we could really hammer it, and, and that's the big question now, can we do that in the current situation or have we left it too late? That's, that's the... That's a very important question no one knows the answer to. But if we could hammer it well, and then we have sufficient testing and sufficient standard public health measures whereby if if there's a case or there's an outbreak, then you immediately quarantine. And you may have to quarantine more than that household. You may have to be, you know, in other words, people would have to be prepared for some of those measures. It's possible that the infection outbreak rate is so low that people could largely go back to their lives. Not completely. We'd still have to avoid handshakes and wash our hands and keep our social distance to some extent. But we might be able to live a much more normal existence until the vaccine, which hopefully will be coming and will work. And and I think that wouldn't be unreasonable. Remember, we have other infectious diseases out there that break out sometimes and 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 there are risks, but but you know they're relatively low. If the risk could be you know, push down low enough for this virus, yes, there'd still be risk, I have no doubt. And yes, it's a trade-off, 
but I think people would be uh, prepared for that sort of trade-off. There's a little bit more risk, mm. but we live a bit more normal lives. And um, again, that may not take six months if, and a big if, if we suppress it. And if we don't, then I don't know how long this is going to go. Yes. Just finally, Nick, before I let you go, you did raise there there are other infectious diseases that uh, can become really quite a problem and circulate within the community. And a number of people um, have some apprehension around winter arriving and uh, influenza perhaps becoming an issue. In terms of surge capacity, we've been discussing the capacity of ICUs, intensive care units, but ACE has also been talking about the surge capacity of emergency departments, which uh, I'm sure many doctors would be aware and nurses too, that emergency departments are busy at the best of times. Has Australia done work to prepare for surges of demand for our emergency services and emergency departments in something like uh, a winter season where there's more than one infectious disease uh, doing the rounds? I know a number of hospitals are looking at this very seriously because it's a really important issue. I'm not aware of any national approach or statewide approaches, although there may well be, and I'm just not aware of them. I wouldn't be surprised. But the good news about the flu season is uh, we can get, a, we can get uh, vaccination, and mm. I guess it will be very important everyone who can, who's eligible, gets vaccinated to try and reduce the load. Obviously, if we have a really bad flu season, which I certainly hope we don't, um, then that would compound some of the situations we face because uh, that, that can push bed capacity, general hospital bed capacity in winter to a reasonable extent, although nothing like the COVID crisis we've seen overseas. So that's that's at least on the good side of it. Yes. And just maybe on a positive note, given the very recent announcement on telehealth, what's your perspective on this? Presumably having seen the debates around telehealth for a number of years now, is this a welcome development for the medical profession? I believe it is, and I wonder if COVID will change a lot of the way we do a lot of things. I mean, I'm currently telehealthing patients uh, in my clinic, you know, the ones who would normally come face-to-face, which is, the, you know, obviously uh, in some ways better. But on the other hand, the telehealth has worked reasonably well in terms of sorting out these problems. Um, so, look, I certainly welcome what's happened here and uh, perhaps in the future we'll be doing a lot more telehealth and that'll be more convenient for patients than the current model that we have. But um, So, there, yeah, there is some good news in all of this despite uh, people's concerns and, and I'm actually optimistic we're going to be able to succeed here and really suppress the infection. Mm, Well, thank you so much. I'm very grateful to you, Nick, for your time and for sharing your thoughts. And uh, it's really wonderful to speak with you, given you are in a great position to see and look at the new and emerging research that's coming out on the coronavirus and to give us an insight into what's happening now in Australia and what we need to think about. So thank you very much for your time today and uh, hope you are also doing well. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking with Laureate Professor Nick Talley. He is Editor-in-Chief of the Medical Journal of Australia, which is Australia's leading peer-reviewed journal. It is open access, so you can actually read the articles that we've just been discussing, and it's at the mja.com.au. They're providing access, pre-print access, to their new articles, which have just been published online. And uh, 
hopefully that is a helpful background and gives you an idea of where we're at in some of these really important issues in Australia's healthcare sector and system and uh, perhaps looking at it from the uh, medical profession's perspective as well and get the insight from them. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.